Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Here we are, I'm Brendan, and I'm here again with Mark G. Mark, the week comes around so quick and it's been busy, I'm tired, I've been doing some very interesting cases, seen some interesting cases this week, and um, some good, some bad, some dying, some not dying, it's all happening. Mark, what have you been up to? It's been pretty much the same, Brendan. We've been really, really um, pretty busy with some complicated cases, um, and um, and yeah, much the same as you. I've had we had two diabetic dogs come in this week. One's just gone along awesomely well, and the other one developed pancreatitis and uh, and was unable to be stabilised with insulin. Its electrolytes were all over the shop, and and uh, fairly reasonably, the clients decided to um, not take it any further. So. Some you make it, some you don't. You win some and you lose some. I was a little bit late heading home tonight, Mark, because I my last consult, I think it was my last, it might have been my second to last, actually. My last one was a snake, but that's another story. Um, it was a rabbit um, that was lame and this rabbit had been lame for about four days um, and the owner was giving it a little bit of a, um, anti-inflammatory and on steroidal with a little bit of pain relief and they thought they could feel a swelling in the foot of this rabbit and a brief examination of the rabbit and um, guess what? That leg was pretty obviously broken there so this poor little rabbit had its radius and ulna fractured on Monday, and now we're towards um, the end of the week here, aren't we, Mark? And um, it's been pretty damn sore, I'd expect, and it's hardly had any pain relief. So we put a Robert Jones bandage on it. It's been filled full of opiates, and I expect it'll be back tomorrow morning, booked in for anaesthesia and radiographs, and then we'll see what we can do with the little bunny. But um, it's it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes you just don't, don't understand why people don't make the link in that just because it's an animal, hey, if it has a broken leg, maybe it hurts just as much as if it was a human that had a broken leg. But why don't they see it sometimes, Mark? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I'm getting angry already. I'm getting angry already. Fired up. Um, I I don't know why it is. And it is uh, uh, exactly as you say. It's a daily occurrence that, um, that we get. Uh, at our hospital, a, a some type of case uh, that um, that, does, that where the animal has been sore, um, uh, and we get to a point where um, where people come in almost begrudgingly, um, and uh, and it is it, it's sometimes hard to hold your tongue and speak nicely because you know they how would they behave if they had a broken leg and were asked to sit for two or three days to you know see if it got better. Before they yeah. went to the doctor, I I just do not understand that that disconnect with it, and and I think the other one that grates on me, Mark, that follows on from that is the the person who rings up and says, "Oh, um, I need a repeat of some medication, some prescription drugs for my animal." Um, when did we last see your animal? Oh, eight months ago or one year ago, and then they get all 
angst and, and angry at us um, that we won't then just have the medication waiting for them. And yet I doubt any of them will be phoning up their local GP when they have um, um, an issue when they've been prescribed medication and, and ring up their GP and say, just spend something for me. You'd never think of doing that to your GP. So I'm angry, Mark. I am angry. And maybe because it's, I'm a little bit tired tonight, <laughs> but um, I'm getting a little bit cynical. But um, I think I forgot to talk about all our little contact details didn't I? So it's a weekend in June the 8th, 2018. And if anybody wants to send us an email, just send it to vetgurus at gmail.com and say, hello, Brendan, stop being an idiot and calm down. Um, and hello to Mark. Or tell us a little story about what you've been doing in, in the veterinary community as far as a veterinarian or a veterinary nurse or a veterinary intern or a veterinary resident or, or a technician or um Anybody else who's involved in the veterinary industry because we love getting emails and we certainly had a, a beauty of an email this week, Mark, which we're going to put off till next week. And I think the person will know who it is because we've already replied to this person privately, but we'll talk about that email next week, Mark. And at, at we do have at yeah, well, at least for a couple of minutes. Um, and we do have a really important announcement to make in the coming couple of weeks. Mark's, Mark, we have somebody has decided to sponsor our podcast to, with a this, not this insignificant amount. Yes. It's so exciting, Brendan. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it is very, very exciting news. We've, um, we've sort of committed well to keep at this, I reckon, but it just makes it so much easier to... to um, to keep it going. It's fun. I think we'd do it no matter what, but it does make it uh, a little bit easier when um, there's that support. Coming. Yes, and it will not influence our choice of anything in the podcast, but we will be mentioning the um, sponsors quite shortly and um, we thank them and we'll, we'll chat about that in probably next week or the next week after. I think we should jump into news, Mark, because we've already been prattling on for five minutes already and i'm going to take the first one mark and this one's in dedication to one of my nurses mark um melinda hi mel i know you listen to the podcast every week when you're doing your cooking or your cleaning or when you need to have a bit of a snooze i think you put us on as well and and um, you nod off pretty quickly and mel said to me the other day mark she said to me brendan I'm a bit sick of all these depressing news stories you have on your podcast, Brendan. Can you do something about that? Well, this one's for you, Mel, and the title of this one is Human Race is Just 0.01% of All Life But Has Eradicated Most of Other Living Things on the Planet. There you go, Mel. This one's for you. And um, it's a big survey saying that um, the world's 7.6 billion people represent just 0.01% of all living things, according to the study. And yet, since the dawn of civilization, humanity has caused the loss of 83% of all wild animals and half the plants while livestock has been kept by humans has been taken off, Mark. So it's another bit of a depressing um, little report there, Mel, so I'm sorry about that, but I'm going to make amends to it with my second report, which you might find quite interesting, although it's a little bit scary, my second one, I think, and I'll talk about that shortly after you've gone through your first one, Mark. So, yeah, it goes into a little bit more detail here, and it was about a study that was um, 
sort of looked at estimating all the different components of biomass over the years um, and it was done by Professor Rod Milo and um, I love some of the names of these people that have these quite quirky um, reports and Half the time I wonder whether they're made up, some of these names that they yeah. put in there. Um, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so we assume it's a pretty good pretty good study there. Um, there. And it's just talking about the domination of the human species um, on the planet and looking at the fact that, um, for instance, farm poultry, Mark, and you'd be interested That was in my favourite pa- yeah. paragraph. Yeah, that farmed poultry today makes up 70% of all the birds on the planet with just 30% of birds being wild ones. And the picture's even more stark for mammals, Mark, where 60% of all mammals on Earth are livestock, mostly cattle and pigs, 36% are humans and just 4 4% wild animals so there you go now i'm I'm not only angry i'm depressed as well mark Um, i was excited excited, i was excited by the fact that um you know this uh new geological era the anthropocene um they they're suggesting that the marker if you like the the um archaeological geological marker as uh, to set the time for the Anthropocene. Now, the bones of domestic chickens, when they turn up in the strata, that indicates... Um, so chickens are literally 70% of the living birds and mark the time when humans became dominant. They're, they're, I don't know whether humans are dominant or chickens are. That's right. Well, they're... they're- I was going to say a silly joke then, but I won't because even for me it was a little bit too silly. So, yes, go ahead, Mark. Yes. Um, so do you, what do you take out of this? Do you think it's um, uh, what can we do? What do, Eat less meat. Is that the answer? Well, I think that's one of one part of the answer. <laughs> so I'm really worried. I'm, I'm just really worried about Mel, to be honest with you. I think- well, I think we can change that around with um, I think the last story will will make her feel all warm and fuzzy inside, Mark, but um, let's – and maybe the second story will. So what what is the second story, Mark? Let's jump onto that one. The second story is the announcement that uh, greyhound racing and trialling has officially been banned in the ACT. Um, So greyhound racing um, has uh, now um, actually carries a – penalty um, of $15,000 or imprisonment for one year or possibly both um, if it takes place in the ACT. Um, the ACT government has set up a transition support package and there's free counselling uh, for anyone who is affected by the end of greyhound racing in the ACT. That's very good to see. Um, but uh, um, there will be no more um racing of greyhounds or trialling of greyhounds in the Australian Capital Territory. I think this is a positive story, Brendan. I think that um, that it is difficult to justify on welfare grounds um, the racing of greyhounds and to see that a government authority has, um, you know, taken a stance against it, I think that's an excellent story. It's a I little agree. Bit, it's a little bit sad that, um, that New South Wales took the same stance a couple of years ago, but under pressure from uh, industry groups, um, they uh, they ended up taking a little bit of a backflip 
and uh, and allowing the the whole process to continue for the moment. But um, my understanding of the statistics, Brendan, when we look at the number of racing greyhounds that are registered, um, it makes a very very neat graph uh, of decline and the intersection with zero. Uh, if you were to continue, if you were to extrapolate the graph from today, is only something like 10 years out. So even if there was no government in, uh, um, mandate to end greyhound racing, I just think it will disappear. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing for governments to take the lead and cut the tail end off this uh, um, dying race form. Yes, and I think... The, the argument that it will destroy an industry and destroy um, um, jobs, yeah, I think you've just got to move on. You know, it's like the Industrial Revolution when that came along, every, and um, lots of people who 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 were getting up at what four in the morning um, when they're six years old to go to work weren't doing it anymore <laughs> um, because things change um, and 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 jobs change and life change and 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 as you just mentioned there'll be a, a shift and it's not going from a hundred to zero um, straight away it's going to tail off uh, gradually over time anyway and, it, and it's an industry that I think personally and I think you agree as well that shouldn't be occurring so um I think it's a good thing. It's a positive thing, and Mel should be feeling good about this, Mark. Mel should be feeling good. I'm sure she is, Brendan. And so what's the next thing to brighten Mel's day? Well, giant worms, Mark. Giant worms have invaded France or France, depending on um, how posh you want to get with speaking. And it is quite interesting because – I. I I mean, people worry about zombies, but I think they should worry a bit more about these predatory worms that have been making their way slowly but steadily from Asia across to France. And their invasion's well underway, Mark. Um, and they, biologists, have identified five species of alien worms, including, and you're going to make a, a little story or comment on this, the distinctive hammerhead variety of worm, which is um, wreaking havoc, Mark, on local wildlife, gobbling up earthworms and scaring the bejesus out of unsuspecting gardeners, according to the article there. And people uh, were not, well, they said people didn't know about it, but apparently some people have been trying to warn people for 20 years that it's happening, Mark. So you've seen one of these hammerhead worms, Mark, and can you describe these hammerhead worms? And well, where did actually- you see them? Well, they're actually quite beautiful animals, Brendan. I, I um, was lucky enough to see one when I was travelling with the family in Borneo um, and we were uh, up at Sandakan and at Sepulok we were looking at the orangutans and there's a, they have a night walk you can do around there and um, these worms were out on the uh, boardwalk and um, and I did get a couple of photographs of them and they the ones that we saw were about 10 or you know, uh, uh, 25 or 30 centimetres long. They're predatory things and they're actually not like not unpleasant to look at, a bit slimy, um, but they, they they have a um, a toxin that um, we're, we're already a bit familiar with this toxin, but I didn't realise these worms had it. Yes. And what toxin is that, Mark? That's the tit- <laughs> <laughs> That's the tetratotoxin, Brendan, um, the, uh, the toxin that... Uh, um, uh, um, the the 
boxfish, the toadfish, um, and uh, um, they're that family of fish, which is uh, the ones that the Japanese cooks will uh, cook a very special way to um, to uh, uh, get rid of the toxin. Um, and people take a chance that the the uh, sushi chef they're dealing with does know the correct way to affect the the uh, um, the the um, uh, toxin, so it's no longer poisonous. But um, I didn't realise these worms had it, Brendan. Yes, neither did I. Neither and we, did we, I find, that- we find locally that um, it's actually. Do you do you guys down there in Melbourne get uh, um, Labradors that wander along the beach and find the dried up carcasses of the toadfish and think they're the tastiest thing on the face of the planet? Well, I have heard of um, some of them chewing on the, all sorts of stuff down the beach there, but it is, a, is it a particular um, condition you see up there at Newcastle, <laughs> is it? It does seem to be something that we um, we do see quite regularly here in Newcastle. They're uh, common estuarine fish and we do see quite a few of the uh, um of the dogs that come in that uh, that are affected by the poison, and we you know go through the process of inducing emesis and stabilising them, and most of them pull through. But they, they, it's quite a dangerous toxin, and it's uh, it's surprising that it's popped up in you know um, several uh, um, phyla in different phyla in different families of animals. Mm. And this, um, this, these worms, or at least one species of them, is is regarded as the world's biggest flatworm mark, up to ten inches long, I think, um, according to the article there. So, so they're panicking a little bit in France because they didn't have these um, these flatworms um, or these giant predatory worms before, and they're turning up in all sorts of places, in, including in the coat of cats and um, wriggling in the garden when people are doing gardening. Um, they're not not causing any obvious deaths um, with people, um, not that I know anybody who's who's cooking them up and eating them anyway, Mark, um, but it was a quite an interesting and a little bit of a fun article there, so another one there for Mel um, to, to try and warm her day up and um, wake her up from her slumber and her, her cleaning um, of, the, of the house there um, because she says she loves to do it when she's cleaning because she needs to listen to something boring and it makes the cleaning even more exciting. And apparently that's what she says to me anyway every week. Um, so our last news story, Mark, is I found this one absolutely fascinating and a bit, bit of a sci-fi one, isn't it? It is a bit of a sci-fi one and it's um, it just uh, is immediately relevant to um, some discussions I had on the weekend with some of my bird watching mates that um, that uh, it, there are so many uh, questions about where birds go and what they're doing um, that we literally don't know um, so for example just as an Australian example um, the regent honey eaters uh, which are a critically endangered um, native Australian species, which you would be aware of from down, you, you know, there's a, a bit of a stronghold down um, towards Melbourne, but um, they radiate, they travel up north and radiate out. They reach a number of places, uh, even as far north as uh, as us in Newcastle, um, but they disappear. They'll, they'll be not seen for a year. And so the, um, there's this story which t- actually talks about um, other species which do seem to be either uh, temporarily disappeared or actually uh, um, in in staggering decline. Um, some spots in North America, the songbirds are being reported to have dropped um, by maybe 
nearly 80% um, since 1970, which explains why the chickens are taking over, um, particularly the songbirds, the noise pollution, the um, uh, habitat destruction, agricultural development, um, pesticides and the contamination of the environment, all having a very detrimental effect on our small songbirds. And we literally don't know enough about what they do or where they go. So many species travel um, quite large distances and we literally don't know what they're doing. But this story tells, this uh, news article tells the story of... Um, of uh, the um, Icarus project, Brendan, where um, these tiny, tiny solar-powered devices can be attached to the animal um, and they stay with them. They uh, beam a signal to a satellite, the Icarus satellite, um, and the technology will not only track the entire lives of birds and give us an idea of how they move, where they move, and where they end up dying, but even for animals as tiny as honeybees, these uh, tracking devices can be put on, um, and the satellite, the big eye in the sky, um, can um, watch them forever. It's going to play an absolutely critical role in providing data for understanding food chains or um, even understanding the spread of diseases like Ebola. So um, this is a really exciting new um, uh, research tool that I've got no doubt will be a bit of a quantum leap for us with many of our Australian animals and animals all around the world, Brendan. Yes, I think it will be fantastic. And I was just—I was trying to flick through there and see who's sponsoring it, who, who's paying for it. Because I mean, the Icarus, yeah, stands for International Cooperation for Animal Research Using Space, and yeah, it will be mounting that antenna on the International Space Station. Um, but yeah, maybe it must be multi-institutional. Um, um, support for it, Mark. I, I couldn't see anything in this article about um, who's paying for it, but I think it's a fantastic idea. The eye in the sky, Mark. Um, we're being watched by Big Big Brother or Big Icarus, aren't we? Um, or at least our animals will be. And I know, I know, I'm in a bit of a silly mood um, tonight, Mark. But no. I can see, I can see the odd person. Um, they look like little microchips, don't they? Um, the picture they have at the little Ooh, tracking device. Microchips. Yes, um, I can see some um, a few people implanting them into themselves um, because I know not not um, not stating any names of anybody. I know a few veterinarians who have implanted themselves with microchips. Um, I think it must have been after mainly after a few uh, a few too many drinks. But um, yeah, I don't know why you would want to do that. But I could see that there will be a few people who will implant themselves and be followed by Icarus um, 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's a great thing. So there we go. That's our last news story there, Mark, Icarus um, following. And it's it, by the sound of things, though, we're going to um, think about implanting those little um, devices in a large range of, range of species, weren't they, Mark? They were concentrating on birds, but um, they were going to um, track other species as well. So, no, I think that will be a very interesting project. It would be one I would have been loved to get involved with or at least to hear some more about soon yeah so should we do a review or not i know what you want to review mark but you can review that um next week or the week after and that's a film you saw recently um so um is that what you want yeah, to yeah, review I think, I think that's a good one for, have you well have you seen the film in question yet brendan 
No, I haven't. So let's leave it for the moment and um, we'll chat about it um, when we've both seen it. I know you have and you quite liked it. Let's, um, I think we should, um, let's skip um, skip a review or a product review this week because we have a, a good fun, not a top 10, is it, Mark? It's just 10 things or 10 conditions or 10 problems that you may see in unusual pets and that we certainly see in unusual pets fairly frequently that um, our listeners may see but they don't recognise. Um, and we just want to run through a few of these because we thought they were fun things that we see, and, and well, some not so fun, that we see fairly commonly. And I think we've called them unusually common is the name of the, the episode and that fits in with the top 10, or not the top 10, at least the 10 that we're going to talk about today, Mark. Um, <laughs> I really and like I'll this. T- I, I like this title, Brendan. I really like it a lot because um, I think I, even you know, even though we see these things quite a lot, I usually need to be reminded to think of them. It, it is a a, a a fault of mine, I think, that I keep looking for zebras when there's hoofbeats, and um, and so uh, just to be reminded to look for the common things amongst our unusual pets. I think that's a good thing. I really like this topic. Good. Well, let's see how common these things are because um, we may get people reply emailing us, or or or, or that we sit, we actually see face to face saying that um, that's not common at all. The first one I'll take, Mark, and that's follicular stasis in bearded dragons, and I always have this on my differential list of an unwell, obviously female bearded dragon that is an adult that's brought into my clinic, Mark. Um, so regardless of the time of the year also, um, I've always got this in the back of my mind if we've got a not quite right, an NQR as our, our friends in the USA like to put it down in their, their medical records, um, bearded dragon, I will always have this on the list there. So what do I look for with it? Well, this is a bearded dragon that's not doing well, that we can't quite identify any obvious problem with the husbandry and the basic setup with the animal i would start thinking is it an entire female which most of them are because we don't routinely desex these or perhaps we should be desexing these female bearded dragons because it is a common problem and a reasonable number of the mark and i like your brief comment on it um, you can palpate these follicles quite readily in them and straight away i'm getting a high suspicion that this animal has follicular stasis in it. So always think about follicular stasis in adult female beta dragons that have especially a chronic or a brewing illness that's um, hanging in there for several days or several weeks. Um, it also happens in the acute ones as well, Mark. But, um, yeah, that's number one. Do you see it a fair bit? We do. We see quite a few bearded dragons that get this exact problem. And as you say, um, uh, um, adult female not doing well and um, you can palpate the follicles um, and then uh, move on, often surgery, um, but, um, but definitely treating the pain and discomfort. Yes. Number two. Number two is my one, Brendan. It's beaks in birds. Um, we often see, particularly in uh, budgerigars, excessively long, straight beaks. Not the malocluded ones, but the ones that line up perfectly and you know form these very, very long. Often getting to the point where they'll pierce a little hole in the the um, the uh, uh, around the um, crop in the neck of the bird, um, and. Th- 
speaking of our problems of why people won't ask you know they come how these must have been growing for weeks um and they come in at uh, some end stage where the birds can't eat anymore in these birds i always uh suggest uh obviously trimming the the beak having a short anesthetic and using our dental instrument or um a burr-like instrument shaping the beak back to normal but there will be underlying disease, Brendan. We've got to look for that uh, problem that's leading to the beak to be overgrown. And most commonly, it's liver disease. The liver of budgerigars um, suffers under the over uh, over preponderance in the diet of um, simple sugars and gets into trouble and then starts producing uh, uh, inappropriate proteins, particularly the keratin of the beak, which becomes inappropriately hard and grows beyond its ability to wear, and there you have a long beak. So my tip for anyone with a budgerigar with a long beak, make sure you check out the bird's abdomen and liver, get some bloods, and diagnose the problem with the liver. It's the canary in the coal mine isn't it mark or the budgie in the um the budgie in the cage yes so think whatever else is wrong with it and it's often that liver condition and i think isn't there a picture of that on our good friends um um bird bobbed um bob donnelly's um textbook on avian medicine um on the front cover is 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 that that particular condition i think it may be I may be mistaken. I'll have to have a look after I've um, recorded the podcast, Mark. So number three, um, that's me, isn't it? It's ovarian cysts in guinea pigs. So we know, and I think we went through this in a previous podcast, um, that if we have a mature entire female guinea pig, the chances of it having cysts on its ovaries is extremely high, depending on the research papers or the retrospective studies you look at that can be potentially up to well over 90 percent of these and the good news is you can often palpate these a bit like what we're talking about with the follicular stasis in the bearded dragon so part of a clinical exam of every guinea pig that comes into the clinic not just the females but especially those females that haven't been desexed is to palpate that app abdomen and you often pick up these ovarian cysts um, big ones small ones in between ones so start palpating and start finding these ovarian cysts in guinea pigs mark they're, they're very very cool when you do find them aren't they brendan and and they don't always they, they obviously cause problems for some guinea pigs but not always you'll find them in uh in regular physical exams um my next one is a bit of a sore point brendan this i'm a bit touchy about this topic. I'm going to talk about insulinoma in ferrets. Um, And uh, it's a particularly uh, common thing that we see with uh, um, comorbidities. It's something that with a ferret will often come in and have all the signs of adrenal disease. And um, and it will uh, um, often at the same time have an insulin producing tumour in its pancreas. Um, And of course, uh, the ferrets uh, with low blood sugar become weak and disoriented and squirm around on the floor and don't play nearly as much and become very lethargic. Um, And uh, and they can, these, unlike all the other uh, structures we've been talking about, these can be very difficult to find, even with um, very, very high level uh, ultrasound, fine detail ultrasound. Um, you might not be able to pick these very small, benign um, uh, uh, 
tumours, which sometimes benign, sometimes malignant, which secrete insulin and make the ferrets very, very sick. Um, the treatment, the gold standard treatment, um, is to treat them surgically to open them up and cut them out. And I've done a few of these, Brendan, but they're, geez, the pancreas plays up afterwards. And even with, you know, um, much more delicate tissue handling technique than mine, they they can be very, very painful afterwards. Um, but often I'm just treating them with uh, corticosteroids. The, the insulin resistance induced by uh, cortisone is often enough to control these guinea pigs, um, uh, these ferrets with this problem until um, uh, you can sort out their comorbidities and then formulate a plan from there. I agree. Totally with everything you said, Mark. I don't need to add anything else there. Um, no, we don't. So let's move on to the next one, and that is pituitary tumours in rats, a very common problem of geriatric rats, males and females. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen this. They may not have identified it in rats that they are seeing. And the classic signs for these pituitary tumours that we see in these age rats are neurological signs. So, that, And it may be subtle. It may be that the rat occasionally falls when it's trying to climb up the side of its cage. It stumbles occasionally, or it may be more, more severe than neurological signs like knuckling of the back legs, pro- obvious proprioceptive deficits that are, that are continuous with it. And it is amazing how many of these do have the pituitary neoplasms sitting there in the um, in the pituitary there, Mark, and they end up being massive. I, I know you, I've certainly um, opened up the, the heads of these um, animals and looked at the size of the, of the pituitaries with them, and they're massive, and I'm sure you've done the same, Mark, with them. So start thinking pituitary neoplasia when you see these age rats that are struggling neurologically. And we do see, and it's one of those things that um, that though it is relatively subtle um, and often progressive, and and yeah, you'd, they are exceedingly common in the rats we get to see as well, Brendan. Um, my next one is one that I, it's common. I re- I reckon it's common, Brendan. I reckon we see quite a lot of it, and um, but I don't think it's recognised nearly as much as uh, it should be, and that's disc disease in rabbits. Um, we know now, we know that um, uh, the uh, intervertebral discs in our um, la- domestic lagomorphs, they will um, degenerate at a very, very young age. So 18 months uh, is the time at which researchers suggest that the, uh, the cartilage in those discs is starting to break down. Um, and so it's no surprise that um, in an animal that has such a hugely flexible back um, that there is pain as they get older. And there's a whole series of, um, of uh, clinical signs um, that range from altered grooming to altered locomotion to altered patterns of uh, uh, food intake um, to urine scalding around the uh the hindquarters, all these things are exacerbated by disc disease. Um, and I think we've got to open our minds and look more closely at these rabbits um, and take more aggressive uh, um, analgesic approaches, anti-inflammatory approaches. And also I've found um, uh, the pentasan polysulfate drugs particularly useful for these guys. So my tip, if you have a, a uh, an ageing 
rabbit who has any of those signs that might suggest that the back is sore, start looking for disc disease, Brendan. Do you see that? We see lots of them. So I always have disc disease on the list of any, even even um, not even middle age, as you mentioned, any rabbit that's that's two or three onwards. I always put that on the differential list with a rabbit that that is struggling and, and again, the not quite right rabbit that I haven't narrowed it down to, to one of the other numerous common causes we see with rabbits with, with, with being brought in with illnesses. And, um, yeah, you're absolutely right in that a lot of the research has shown that um, the discs in rabbits degenerate at a very young age compared with other species. And I think because of that, they actually use rabbits as a, as a model for studying disc disease and, and, and treatments for disc disease in humans um, in laboratory rats because of that exact reason, Mark. So, yes, we certainly see a lot of them and um, you work them up like you would with any other animal that you think may have disc disease and, and you start off with with the basics of, of, of blood screens and, and plain radiographs and, and then go from there. But, yes, a large percentage of the ones that I see they, they do re- seem to um, respond very well to, to combinations of, of basically analgesics and, and non-steroidals, yeah. Um, so the next one is, we're up to number seven already, Mark. The next one, and it's called lots of different things, but probably the most common name for it these days, Mark, is proliferative spinal osteopathy or spinal osteopathy is the the old name for it in snakes so this is a snake that is lumpy and bumpy and when you see one of these if you haven't seen one before you'll never forget it because take a radiograph of it and you'll see some amazingly dramatic changes in the spine of these animals we have proliferation as as the name suggests and destruction of bone um, in in the spinal um, region and so the classic ones that i see mark would be a client that brings in the snake that they'll say oh my snake's got a, a few lumps on it and it is shocking you've got these almost golf ball sized lumps on on the spinal region with the animal because it basically has this broken back and it's trying to form a callus in that area but because we've got changes in that back and there's a lots of theories isn't there about what potentially is causing it and and how to prevent it in in um in in these snakes we won't go into detail at the moment we might do it on another podcast but um the bad news is it, it's 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 untreatable as far as I'm, I'm concerned no matter what you try and do with these and and the animals almost certainly in extreme pain and we end up euthanizing them all and um, i expect that you probably do the same with these cases do you mark it's precisely the same, Brendan. I've, they are in exquisite discomfort, and they certainly can't uh, carry out then, you know, the normal functions. They often uh, will be constipated or have uh, pain on elimination, and they don't move normally. That and they are, are, are very, very sad cases. It's interesting, Brendan, that um, this is one of the diseases that is probably not entirely a disease of captivity, because we do see um, a reasonable number of um of uh, snakes in the wild um come down with this and um and so i think it uh it you know it's uh um, as you said 
probably reflects trauma to the spine and remodeling and and we will take a time in the future to discuss it in much much greater detail because i've got to talk about number eight brendan number eight already yes um number eight is about me back to birds and um and i have to every time we talk about uh, unusually common I, when it comes to birds they are such reproductive machines our feathered friends that um that we very commonly see that reproductive system go pear-shaped and egg yolk coelomitis is probably our primary uh, uh, definitive diagnosis once we um, start working up uh, birds that have uh, abdominal swelling um, then, then egg yolk coelomitis would be our most common cause these birds misfire they ovulate or uh, they ovulate and the yolk which is the ovum passes not to the uh, infundibulum the opening of the reproductive tract but ends up free in the coelom and after a period of time will burst and the contents of the yolk are highly irritating to the membranes of the lining of the abdomen and they cause a profuse uh, um, uh, uh, exudate the body tries to drown out those irritating proteins and fats and um, as a consequence you get this delicious yellow soup um, that causes the abdomen to be hugely inflamed and um, the, uh, the 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 uh, membranes lining the um, uh, abdominal cavity become co constantly switched on in this hypersecretory phase to try and uh, flush out the, um, the contents of the egg. And so the birds present um, with a bit of a respiratory distress. Um, poultry will often adopt an upright stance, so they're penguin-like almost, Brendan, um, in an attempt to keep the pressure from that fluid um, uh, pressing against uh, the, the uh our lungs and upper respiratory tract um, and uh, it's very very common we see it in all species as i said poultry um, budgerigars uh, uh, cockatoos they all get this um, and uh, and it really needs to be aggressively treated we use a lot of deslorelin implants to shut down the reproductive tract will drain the fluid off um, and use anti-inflammatory drugs to shut down that secretion. Um, we do have to watch out for the occasional cases that have ascites due to liver disease or heart disease, but by far and away the most common thing is egocelomitis, Brendan. Penguin-like with a delicious yellow soup, Mark. I will not forget that um, as your description of eczema, <laughs> salomitis in birds. Um, we, uh, I've just been noticing our recording program um, on my end had been dropping out a little bit, so hopefully it won't affect um, affect our, our listeners' enjoyment of the podcast. But if you can also check, there's a little note in our little chat window there, Mark, um, while, while I'm going on to the, the next one, and that is oral abscesses in turtles and i see guess what a fair number of these so this is turtles of probably the most i see it is in the short neck species mark but i certainly see it in the long necks as well and these are turtles that come in because the owner would say oh they're not he's not eating very well or she's not eating very well and as soon as you get that animal in the consult room and you remove it from the little carry box you see an obvious swelling um, at the commissures of the mouth or uh, a swelling at the side of the mouth there and we have these typical caseous abscesses mark that we see in reptiles those cheesy abscesses there and um, 
I don't know about you, but I have found a real enjoyment with 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 scooping these abscesses out and flicking them the way of the client in the consult room. Mark, do you enjoy doing that? <laughs> Only if I make a direct hit, Brendan. It's no fun if you. <laughs> No, that's right. And that's the challenge, isn't it? I know you've probably got a little basketball hoop in your your consult room with your like of basketball and you're probably flicking into that that's overlying the, the rubbish bin there. So, yes, we do see a fair number of these. And and I don't know, my theory with these are, 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 are two, two parts to it, Mark, as, as why we see these um, common oral abscesses in them. Um, I mean, in other species, we worry about vitamin deficiencies um, with, with some oral conditions. And and I think there's a, a bit of a grain of truth to that as well in that a reasonable number of the ones that I see with these oral abscesses do have poor husbandry. Um, but the second one is that um, I have seen a few with these wounds um, that then form the abscesses. So they've chomped on something that perhaps they shouldn't have been feeding. Um, and I've even seen the odd the odd turtle that has been fed at, at, at a live feeder fish that was inappropriate for the animals um, with, with feeder fish that have big spikes in them and they end up having this feeder fish stuck in the mouth or stuck in the throat then, Mark, and then they end up with a with a bit of an abscess there but it's amazing how many I'd, I'd be interested in your comment with but i see a i see a lot of these oral abscesses in turtles so that it's unusually common for me Mark. and i is, do you see any um difference between the long neck and the short neck turtles brendan i we see this quite commonly in the uh, long neck turtles but we don't see it nearly as frequently in our short tech short necked <laughs> version <laughs> oh yeah, I I did say it. no. I did mention at the start that I probably see it more in the short necks and the long necks. So it, um, we have a disagreement here, Mark. Um, I do see a reasonable number in short necks, but I do see it in the long necks as well. So I I think we both need to get back to our um, computer programs at work and try and work out whether that is true and if we do have a, a distinction between the north and the south. It would be good, um, it'd be good for us to finally find <laughs> something that's different north and south of the Victorian border. So, Yes. Um, and my well, last one. This is the last one, Brent. Yes. The last. The lucky last. So this is, uh, might might not, you know, I'm, I've really stretched the definition of um, of common um, in my choice of. Um, now, I, hang on a sec. It's number 10, isn't it, this one? It is number 10. <laughs> okay, away you go. Sound effects. <laughs> we are styling up. <laughs> um, so number 10 is when you are presented with a relatively large spider from uh, we did we get this happens quite often we get spiders brought in both for identification and treatment um, when they're presented um, before you uh, admit them and start to treat them make sure they're alive Brendan make sure they're still kicking and, and even if they are alive make sure that your receptionist doesn't get to them um, with her preferred anesthetic technique for spiders which might just be a can of more team. 
So tell me the story. What happened with that? <laughs> we do. We had a uh, quite a large um, Selenocosmia species. You know these guys from far north Queensland. One of the bird eating spiders come in, um, and uh, it had um, uh, um, it come in and had a uh, a wound on it, um, and the owner had thought that it was already dead. So he was just asking us to have a look and you know make sure that it was uh, it was all um, uh, that. It, the wound was um, the result that you know that it led to the spider passing away. It had sat in the corner with its legs all wound up. Um, but when we did give it a bit of a poke, Brendan, um, my receptionist did want to grab the mortine and give it a spray because the legs unfurled and uh, it did manage to. They don't jump very much these spiders, fortunately, uh, but it did. It does this slow tarantula crawl across the uh, container. Um, and it did clear the room fairly effectively. So just make sure that you've got uh, whether your spider is alive or dead sorted out before you uh, um, discard or admit it. And is that receptionist still with you, mate? They are, in fact. They are, in fact, still with us. <laughs> and so do, the, do you have the can of the insect spray um Hidden away in the cupboard we've now, actually, I think, when, actually, she's, when he or she is on we've duty. We've actually discarded the insect spray altogether. In our attempt to limit pesticides entering the uh, environment, we've limited ourselves to, you know, flea, um, flea protection. We're not going to have any uh, cans of spray in the hospital, Brendan. Good decision, Mark, good decision. Well, I think we could go on for 20 or 30 or 40 of these unusually common problems that we see in animals, but these were, these were well, 10 that we just thought off the top of our heads in, in the couple of minutes before we started the podcast um, that we thought would be of interest to um, everybody out there and our listeners um, because we do see them unusually commonly, don't we, Mark? So I think... Um, I think that's about it for this week, Mark. It's been a bit of a weird one, um, and I'm sure the tone in this one has been brought down by me because I've been a bit um, gaga tonight. Um, I haven't lost my mind, but I'm pretty close to losing my mind because we had a pretty pretty busy day today, Mark, a pretty busy day, and I had some other crazy cases, not just the, the rabbit with a broken front leg, Mark, um, and we might chat about one or two of them next week if I remember, but I think it's time that we need to say goodbye and good night. And um, there you go, Mel, that episode was for you and I hope you enjoyed it and um, hope you've got a bit of a smile on your face now and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Listener.